Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Christmas only comes once a year and it's time to be joyous and happy and just feel good. You cannot deny the power of beautiful music. It is an expression of hope that transcends religion or culture. Just a fun song. Like, there's a reason that it sticks around. You don't have to get technical. It's just a bop. Welcome to Hark, a podcast about the meaning and the making of our favorite Christmas carols. I'm your host, Maggie Van Dorn. Over the four weeks of Advent, we'll be unwrapping one song at a time. We'll look at both the musical development of these jingles, along with the religious messages baked into their lyrics. Because here's the thing. We may know these jingles by heart, but do we know where they came from? Or the backstory to how they became popular? Or what troll the ancient Yuletide Carol even means? To help me, I've brought along some truly gifted friends. We'll hear from musicians and composers, theologians, and scripture scholars. You know, people who can parse both Adeste Fidelis and Fa-la-la-la-la. To start, I traveled to the country where so many of our most popular carols originated, England. Yeah, it's um, it's Cornish, so it's English, but kind of Celtic, Welsh or Cornish kind of origins. Okay, no, I didn't travel to the Queen's country. There's still a pandemic and the internet can be a beautiful thing. It's where I first discovered Rosie Pentry. She's a musician and a music writer for Classic FM, a UK-based radio station. Christmas is such a natural, happy, special time for us as a radio station. But Rosie's real claim to fame is that she played the flute for Harry Styles. When I studied in London and lived near London, I played with a folk singer and she used to do sort of underground gigs around all the sort of London venues that did sort of lovely underground folk music. And one of these gigs... A certain Harry Styles was there. My friend who came to listen to us was like, oh my God, it's Harry Styles. And I was so wrapped up in classical music and doing my degree and stuff at the time that I was like, oh, who's that again? And she was like, oh, One Direction, One Direction. So he was there and we played our gig. So he technically did listen to me play the flute. In my research thus far, I've found that there are two types of carolers, the jolly cheer spreaders, and those who prefer a haunting candlelight vigil. So I always lean towards the kind of minor key, sort of somber, very stately sounding Christmas carols. Rosie is clearly the latter. I love Coventry Carol, which is a a medieval carol, um, and it's just gorgeous. The story behind it is actually very dark. King Herod heard about the birth of Jesus and ordered the massacre of the infants, this terrible event where no child was safe. And this carol is the song 
that a mother is singing to a child as they try to hide them, and the end is very tragic. So it's very, very dark. And just in case you don't believe that Christmas carols can contain such darkness, listen to some of these lyrics. Herod the king, in his raging, set forth upon this day. By his decree, no life spare thee, all children young to slay. Not quite the story of a baby Jesus sleeping peacefully in the manger. But perhaps there's a good reason for this. Coventry Carol was never intended as a Christmas carol. Its origins date to medieval England, where during the middle of summer, around the Feast of Corpus Christi, towns would stage productions that told famous biblical tales. These festivals happened all across Europe. Coventry, a town in England, happened to be the most popular, the Woodstock or Coachella of its time. And while there's no denying that Coventry Carol has an eerie quality to it, historians think that the original audience might not have registered the minor key as sad in the way that we do today. For one, everyone at these festivals was basically drunk. And in the text of these plays, there seems to be a lot of comedic moments, even when recounting the massacre of innocents. And then there's the idea that we've been culturally conditioned to associate minor keys with sadder lyrics or themes. But it's not intrinsically tied to the music. Anyways, more on all that later. The bottom line is, we can't know for certain how 16th century folks would have heard Coventry Carol. But even if we do recognize a chilling note in this song, that might not be such a bad thing. There are little anecdotes that suggest that actually listening to somber music can uplift our mood because it's sort of, I don't know, it's like, this is very philosophical, but I think delving into those depths can actually create an uplift overall. What I also think too, whenever you're listening to a sad song, it can help sort of honor a sad experience, which in turn can transform the sad experience. Sometimes sad songs do leave us happier because we're met there. That's it, exactly. You're kind of tapping into a feeling that perhaps you do need to explore, kind of unraveling your head with this beautiful music and come out the other side sort of stronger. And Coventry Carol isn't the only Christmas tune that's sung in a minor key. There's also What Child Is This?, Carol of the Bells. And O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. To name just a few. So we know that the haunting lullaby known as Coventry Carol emerged from medieval plays in the 15th and 16th century. And that it wasn't actually a Christmas carol to begin. But if that's the case, where did the first Christmas carol come from? As early as 129 AD, for example, there was an angel's hymn, which mm. has been sort of discovered uh, through history. And that is incredibly early. It's believed that the Bishop of Rome introduced angel's hymn around Christmas in 129 AD. But this wasn't exactly a new tradition. There were many pagan songs celebrating the winter solstice that 
got adopted to fit the Christian nativity story. This is how the practice of Christian enculturation worked. Rather than stripping a culture of all its sacred traditions, Christians wove their own religious narratives into the existing art, ceremony, and culture of the day. And this practice continued for several centuries. There's a boar's head carol, I think, from about the 12th century that's been recorded that was linked to Oxford University. And then you get to the sort of 17th century in England, so you have the English Civil War and things like that, and the Puritans and Oliver Cromwell make a very concerted effort to actually ban singing at Christmas time. And then suddenly by the 17th century, the Puritans are saying, actually, it's very frivolous and sort of foolish to combine Christianity and a belief in God and Jesus with frivolous feasting of winter. Despite intense efforts to stop people from singing, the music played on, in secret, and people worshipped in clandestine, enduring underground for almost two decades until the English monarchy was restored in 1660 and Puritan legislations and reforms were overturned. And then the kind of Christmas that we know today is very kind of Victorian in nature. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So I always just imagine that Christmas carols kind of came packaged like a gift. Like the music and the text just came together and were conceived at once. But actually, that's not how this goes. Oftentimes, it seems like the text will be, you know, from 9th century Latin, and then it's paired with a 15th century French melody, and, you know, all of this kind of translated and, and rendered anew in the 19th century. So is that typical for how music develops, kind of pieced together over the centuries? Yeah, that's it. I think often a text can exist and a you know, very generally speaking, a composer might have a go at setting that text to a beautiful piece or to a specific arrangement. So when it comes to Christmas carols, you can have the same text set slightly different by a different composer. Or like you say, it might have been sung a certain way in sort of medieval or renaissance times but when it came round to victorian times where there are certain styles and fashions in music the song has been repurposed or it could have just been written down and published for the very first time right so the history of the carol might be long but the published version of it is yeah pretty recent that's it joy to the world the lord has come in the world did caroling become a thing? Because walking around in the freezing cold at night singing might not be the most obvious tradition to start. It's very true. It's like 
let's take a bunch of people, put them out in the cold and um, <laughs> perform music against all the odds. It does feel like that. My starting point with this is that everything about Christmas, at least as we know it today, is sort of bringing this warmth and joy to winter. As far back as medieval times, there were groups that would go around singing these winter solstice songs or singing these carols to bring joy to people. This tradition of going around in groups to bring the music to different households or different public areas came back with a vengeance again with the Victorians. So they're singing to bring the joy and then they'd have sort of mince pies and things in return. You know, when I think about it, I think there's also this very human need to spread joy and I think music's so essential to being human. So I think caroling also comes from that. So when I was researching the most popular carols, at least in the United States, I gathered that most of them reflect a very white Protestant history. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking, surely there are famous Christmas songs from around the world that we have not heard of or that we're not singing. Are you familiar with any that might not be a part of the dominant white Christian canon? This is such a good question. I've always approached it from a very sort of yeah, white colonial Christian approach. And I have to admit, all the carols I know are from that tradition. I invited Rosie on to help us trace some of the oldest Christmas carols that we still sing today. Most of these have European roots, popularized in England and the United States, which have been largely white and Protestant. So when you ask a very limited question, you got a very limited answer. But what if instead we began with songs that have become beloved in Black Christian churches? If we started there, we'd hear a slightly different set list. But that history is hard to trace. You'll find listicles of the best Christmas songs sung by Black artists like Nat King Cole or Stevie Wonder or Donny Hathaway. And while these Black singers are celebrated for the richness and soul they bring to these classics, they're still singing songs that are largely derived from the white European tradition. But every people, every culture, hears something unique in the music. After all, the Christmas story is inclusive. It's all about... The good news. Jesus Christ is born. You gotta share that. This is Gloria Purvis, host of America Media's The Gloria Purvis Podcast. We're to evangelize and share the good news, the good news that sets the captives free, which has a lot of resonance given the history of African-Americans in the United States that freedom is coming. And the good news, and this applies to all of us, you know, that he's coming to free us, to save us, all of us, especially a positive message to people who are enslaved. The story of liberation in Christmas carols has long been a theme in African-American spirituals and then later in 20th century gospel music. But of course, these songs belong to the oral tradition, passed along plantations and down the generations. They don't have the same recorded history as European hymns. Go tell it on the mountain. Take the popular spiritual, Go Tell It on the Mountain. We don't know who originally wrote it. We do know that it became more mainstream thanks to John Wesley Work Jr. 
1865, Work published the first African-American collection of spirituals that included Go Tell It on the Mountain. The song, while proclaiming that Jesus Christ is born, has become a Christmas classic. But it was also picked up in the civil rights movement and combined with other liberation hymns like Go Down Moses. And that's likely because for people in marginalized communities, the nativity story isn't just about sweet, innocent baby Jesus. It's about a God who is willing to enter a broken world, stand alongside the oppressed, and shake things up. So what is so powerful about Jesus' birth is that he's come for all of us. And actually, we see him as one of us, right? Poor, on the outskirts, and yet of so great dignity and importance to the world, right? And he's coming for all of us. And for people who have a history of oppression, people who have a struggle, people who have been enslaved, people who have been outcast by the world, to know that the Savior has been born to liberate us, that he's coming for us. What a joyful, positive message. And what also a counter message to the lies that tell you you're nothing. Well, I am something because Jesus Christ was born and he came for me. And that's a message that resonates not only during Christmas, but year round. I think about hearing Andre Crouch singing soon and very soon we are going to see the king soon and very soon we are going to see the king i mean yeah we are is it no more crying there we are going to see the king no more dying there we are going to see the king i mean how is that not something that you could listen to year round and it also reminds you of whatever suffering and struggle you in right now this stuff is only temporary there are better days in front of us and we are going to see the king i think that could be sung every day So, what have we learned about the history of Christmas carols? Well, they've been around in one form or another since the first century AD. Many of the lyrics originated from Latin chants in the monasteries across Europe. But they weren't always set to the tune we know and love today. That marriage between text and tune was centuries in the making. Although Christmas songs are generally known for their cheer, Parts of them are played in a minor key, evoking an almost hypnotic longing. And sometimes, listening to sad songs has the paradoxical effect of making us feel better. This tradition of spreading joy, whether you're Christian, pagan, or Father Christmas himself, has been a really important part of surviving the depths of winter for centuries. Finally, African-American spirituals have contributed a liberatory theme to the canon of carols. And we're only just beginning. Every Sunday during Advent, we'll release a new episode that dives into the making of a different Christmas carol. I can't reveal what the next song is just yet, but in the Advent spirit of anticipation and longing, I will give you a clue. The song is from an ancient monastic chant that carries within it a hidden reverse acrostic. If you look at every first letter of each of the antiphons, you end up with the two Latin words, ero cras, 
which simply means tomorrow I will come. Thank you for listening to Hark. Before you go, I've got one more piece of good news. Many of the voices you're hearing in Hark are my colleagues at America Magazine. So you know they're thoughtful, but they're also incredible writers. And especially for this Advent season, we've written daily reflections for our digital subscribers. To sign up, go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. The link is in the show notes. Hark is a production of America Media. This episode was written and produced by me and Ricardo Da Silva. Sound engineering from Jim Bilodeau. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Frank Tucson. Production assistance from Kira Hanlon and Jim McDermott. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Special thanks to Harpa Day and Jim Bilodeau for providing some of the original music you heard in this episode. We'll add links to their work in the show notes. For America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn. We'll catch you next week.